Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. A song, like a story, speaks from a time and a place. Time passes and its voice diminishes. But sometimes a story speaks to the essence of human nature, and its power lasts through time, regardless of space, regardless of place. Lorcan Macmahuna Today I have the joy and honour of sharing and Bootish and the meaning of life, the outstanding new album by Lorcan Macmahuna with Martin Turish, Dear Bracken and Eamon Guldoo. The album is accompanied by a beautiful and engaging book, and Bootish and the Meaning of Life, the mythological representation of hope, longing and fire, written by Lorcan. And I have to say, it is an enlightening and philosophical exploration what it is that gives life meaning. And at some point in our lives, most of us will contemplate this. The book is fascinating. Not only does it contain interpretations and explanations of the songs, but it takes us on a journey through a period in Ireland's history that had a profound impact on its people. Famine, conflicts, societal and spiritual upheaval were very real aspects of life, spanning centuries. And this had a tangible effect on art, the written word, music, and voices. Ways in which people could communicate what was in their hearts and minds, and to try to better understand or survive the world surrounding them. In past episodes of the podcast, we've explored a variety of Irish myths, legends, and folklore. And if you have a keen interest in this, as well as the history and traditions of Ireland's people, then this album, this book, is undoubtedly for you. There are striking images, and one that has stayed with me, that I honestly can't stop thinking about, is of a family in their home. Lorcan tells us it was taken at the turn of the 20th century. It shows a woman and four young children, gathered beside a hearth. It's clear that they have very little. The house is sparsely furnished. The room has a dirt floor. And not one of them are wearing shoes. Yet the woman is smiling. Today we will hear some of the music that can be found on the album, and some short translations and passages from the book itself. I will, of course, add links to Lorcan's website, YouTube and social media. Please check out the video recorded on the launch of Anbootish. It was a wonderful evening and I wholeheartedly recommend it. It really was a fantastic experience. The Sean Nos style of singing is more than a melody, and though it is traditionally performed in Irish, I think it possesses a language of its own, one that stirs an emotional response. It can be haunting, powerful, philosophical, and as we will discover today, quite beautiful. I think Lorcan says it best in this quote. My take on Sean Noss is that the melodic shape of a song is entirely based on the formation of the words and their power. 
that the spirit of Shonos is to shape the melody to fit the power of the story. The music and the stories of Shonos are entwined inseparably. It is a deeply expressive form of music. And so, to our first song, and rave to our Ankarig, where you at the rock. Our next song also lends its title to the album, Anvudish. When reading the lyrics, I really was struck by the power of the words, and I was curious about the title, and delighted when I discovered Lorcan provides a little history of the man behind the song. Dermot O'Shea, 1755-1846, wrote Anvudish in criticism of his parish priest. O'Shea was in fact a scholar who taught in hedge schools, and they were affected by the seasons. During the time of the harvest and planting, a teacher might find himself working the land. Hedge schools sprung up in response to the exclusion of Catholic and Presbyterian children from education. However, in the early 18th century, more and more teachers were working in illegal schools that were located near hedges, rivers, outbuildings, homes, and even chapels. It seems that O'Shea and the priest did not get along. Lorcan tells us, O'Shea criticised the priest for employing workers on a holy day. In an altercation over this matter, the workers roughed him up 
and rudely dumped him outside the property. This is the last verse of the song. My love, my weakness, residing in a wasteland. I hear no lines for you in heaven everlasting. I've heard a knot, not in manuscripts modest or learned, since the death of Owen Rua, but we had his like. Have you looked often on one who suffers? You will get your due, I think, on the day of your death. You will go to heaven without hat, without boots, but a noble mantle descending to your feet. Gan hat gan du te 
In his book, Larkin writes, This is a song of the political, allegorical kind 
typical to the 18th century in Ireland. The utterly transformed circumstances of Ireland of that era, where the Irish were dispossessed of their land and reduced to chattel status through the penal law code, elicited a proliferation of political songs where the message was delivered through allegory. This poem laments the reduced state of the herders Droin and Dun, a native breed of cow, which translates as white-ridged, brown-backed. It's a strange metaphor for a wandering people, leaderless and exiled from their homes, but one that is emotionally weighted to be easily grasped by its intended audience, which was used to the allegorical device of anthropomorphical Ireland, represented as a woman in bondage to the new lord. From the second verse. Land, homestead, wines, music, I am reft of them all. Chief and bard that once wooed me are gone from my call. And cold water to soothe me, I sup with my tears. Fill the foe that pursues me as the drinking that cheers. John Vic Morica Glico.
The story behind this song makes for interesting reading. Waterford Chronicle, March 8th, 1834. County Court, Thursday, third day. This morning at ten o'clock, the Chief Baron came into the court, shortly after which a petty jury was sworn, when the following trials took place. John Connery was indicted for the murder of David Tobin on the 1st of October, near Dungarvan. The whole of the evidence adduced on this case turned principally on the dying declaration of the deceased. It appeared that the deceased was going from Dungarvan, accompanied by his wife, to his residence at Colgan. On his way home, he met with the prisoner, his brother, and another person, all of whom went into a cabaret where they drank some whiskey. And while there, one of the Connerys asked Tobin whether he was a Pauline or a Gow. Tobin replied that he belonged to neither party. They then left the house together, and on their way, he received a blow of a stone which fractured his skull, and which ultimately caused his death. A policeman swore that the deceased previous to his death told him positively that it was the prisoner John Connery that struck him. The only witness examined for the defence was a brother of Connery's, who swore that he was in company with his brother when the deceased the night that he received a blow which caused his death, and that he, the prisoner, did not throw any stone or strike any blow to the deceased. The judge charged the jury, and having recapitulated the evidence, commented on it in terms favourable to the prisoner. The jury, having retired to their room, returned in a few minutes with a verdict of acquittal. The Connerys, Patrick, John and James, lived in an Ireland that during the first half of the 19th century faced a great many challenges. Lorcan tells us that during this period, before the famine of 1845-48, Gaelic was still widely spoken among people who found themselves marginalised by the political structures and enforced sectarian order. At this point, Ireland was largely a rural economy and with a strict class system in place, and depending where you existed in the order of things, that decided how difficult life would become when times were hard. Lorcan explains, the labouring class, i.e. the agricultural worker, felt pressure the hardest. Next were the landholders and rent collectors, felt the squeeze at times of falling agricultural prices. And lastly, the landed gentry, a protected class sitting at the top of the pyramid, were mostly immune to the problems this posed. The lives of the Connerys were greatly affected by these issues. Over the years, they found themselves coming to loggerheads with the law, facing charges of illegal activities, ranging from secret societies to accusations of murder, as we heard in the newspaper article, and even escaping from jail. By 1838, the Connery brothers found themselves sentenced 
14 years in an Australian penal colony. The history of the Conneries is fascinating, and Lorcan covers it in detail in this section of the book. I discovered the newspaper article and a convict record online, which lists the brothers on the passenger manifest, along with 71 other offenders. Plate Agastono Plate, son of the King of Lochlin, came forth from the battalion of men in armour and said three times, Farastono, Farastono, Farastono. They fought then and endeavoured each to slaughter and mangle the other, and they fell slain by each other, and they were found in the morning thus, the hair of each in the fist of the other, and the sword of each through the heart of the other. And each of them has come within the grasp of the other, and the battalions made a furious, barbarous, smashing onset on each other. Not one person of the two hosts could recognise another, though it might be his son or his brother. Our spears over our heads had become clogged and bound with long locks of hair, 
when cut away by well-aimed swords and gleaming axes. And there arose a wild, impetuous, precipitate, furious, dark, frightful, voracious, merciless, combative, contentious, the by screaming and fluttering over their heads. And there arose also the satyrs and the idiots and the maniacs of the valleys and the witches and the goblins and the ancient birds and the destroying demons and the feeble demonic phantom host. And they were screaming and comparing the valour and the combat of both parties. Van Udhius. This is a tale lovers of folklore are sure to enjoy, and there are elements that remind me a little of the Scottish Tamlin. We are told of a young woman who, taken against her will, finds herself trapped in a fairy rath or ring fort. She discovers a woman washing clothes by a river and pleads with her to help, revealing much about the life that lies before her should her husband not rescue her. It would be fair to say some of the lyrics are dark and the urgency of the woman's situation is made dreadfully clear. I'll read you a translation by Mary McGoughan. O oh, woman, down yonder on the bank of the stream, do you understand my complaint? It's a year and a day today since I was abducted from my horse. And I was brought into the leaves in the hill. Here is my big, beautiful house. There's plenty of new beer and old beer in it. There's plenty of yellow honey 
and beeswax in it. There's many an old man in fetters in it. There's many a boy with curly brown hair in it. There's many a girl with pretty yellow curly hair in it. There are twelve women bearing sons in it. There are many more besides them in it. Tell my husband to come tomorrow with a wax candle in the palm of his hand, a black-handled knife to bring in his hand, and the first horse to strike in the gap. The herb to cut is at the door of the leaves. I hope to God I will go home with him, for if he doesn't come at that time, I will be made a queen of these women. Sun Cuckooing. The Wind Hover <laughs> <laughs> 
Mekdum Tavi Das
the dead kings. On the 19th of August, 1887, Francis Ledwidge was born to parents Patrick, a farm labourer, and Anne. He was their eighth child. Sadly, by the time he was four years old, his father died, leaving behind nine children, the youngest only a few months old. His mother provided for her family, undertaking work in the fields and earning eight shillings a week. While in education, Francis joined the Literary Society for Juveniles, and his love of poetry was kindled. At the age of 13, Francis left school and, over the following years, was employed in a variety of trades. He met and fell in love with Ellie Boy, and secured a patron by the name of Lord Tansini, a local aristocrat, who said this of the young poet. I was astonished by the brilliance of that eye that looked at the fields of Meath, and seen there all the simple birds and flowers, with a vividness that made those pages like a magnifying glass, through which one looked at familiar things seen thus for the first time. I wrote to him greeting him as a true poet, which indeed he was. Soon after, Francis found himself as a member of the Irish Literacy Circle, and with considerable audience, the magazine Saturday Review had begun to publish his work. Ledwidge found himself in favour of the Home Rule movement. Still, on October 25th, 1914, he joined Lord Dunsany's regiment, the 5th Battalion of the Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers, and was sent to barracks in Dublin. On his decision to join the war effort, Francis said, I joined the British Army because England stood between Ireland and an enemy common to our civilisation. I would not have had it said that she defended us while we did nothing at home but pass resolutions. In July 1915, Lance Corporal Ledwich landed at Gallipoli. By the winter of the same year, Ledwich's regiment were in Serbia, where the conditions were harsh. Suffering an injury to his back during an attack, Francis was hospitalised, eventually being sent to Manchester. While there, Francis heard the news of the Easter Rising and the devastating loss of his friend by execution. Francis was utterly disillusioned by the war effort, but despite a court-martial, he returned to service, and by 1916, he was fighting on the front line in France. In 1917, his unit was then sent north to Belgium. On July 20th, he wrote to his mother, saying, I want to see again my wonderful mother, and to walk by the Boyne to Crubon, and up through the brown and grey rocks of Crocknaharna. You have no idea of how I suffer with this longing for the swish of the reeds at Slane, and the voices I used to hear coming over the low hills of Karabui. Say your prayer at the time you get this leave, and give us a condition, my punctual return in sojourn until the war is over. On the 31st of July, 1917, at only 29 years of age, Francis Ledwidge lost his life.
I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I have. We've only had a small snapshot of the incredible amount of work, dedication and love that's gone into this stunning album and book, and Vodish, and the meaning of life. You can find Lorcan and the album on lorcanmacmathuna.com, YouTube, over on Bandcamp, Soundcloud, Reverb Nation, and Twitter at Mac underscore Lorcan. I always think it's important to learn what inspires work such as this, and at times it's felt like an emotional journey as well as illuminating. I'm delighted to say that the podcast has a couple of projects coming up that will feature the music and incredible singing of Lorcan McMahuna that will appeal to those of us who harbour a love of the Irish and Norse myths, legends and folklore. As always, please feel free to get in touch on email nlegendslore at gmail.com or over on Twitter at loremyth. Do take care for now. I'm Siobhan Clark and you've been listening to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. So walk to